0: You're listening to an Encore edition of Studio Tulsa, recorded earlier this year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. One of the takeaways from the COVID-19 pandemic is that sometimes science, which is known for its painstaking meticulousness, can be expedited when there's enough upstream need and pressure. My guest today, Wall Street Journal staff reporter Amy Doxer marcus has a new book that explores the ways in which parents of children afflicted with a rare condition push scientists and doctors at both the NIH and the FDA to collaborate more and give the families a seat at the table in deciding what compounds to test to ameliorate the condition. Amy Doxer-Marcus has been at the Wall Street Journal for more than two decades. She's the recipient of a 2005 Pulitzer Prize for Beat Reporting for her, quote, masterful stories about patients, families, and physicians that illuminated the often unseen world of cancer survivors. Sadly her mother developed a rare cancer not long after and she delved into the world of rare diseases which resulted in many other articles for the journal and what became this new book titled We the Scientists how a daring team of parents and doctors forged a new path for medicine the book chronicles the stories of several children and their parents as they sought greater collaboration with doctors and scientists in setting the research agenda for this fatal condition Known as Neiman Pick type C disease. Amy Doxer Marcus, Wall Street Journal staff reporter and author of We the Scientists, is my guest today on Studio Tulsa, Medical Monday. Amy Doxer Marcus, welcome to Medical Monday. I'd like to start by having you tell us about Neiman Pick disease type C. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is, how rare it is, and what effect it has on children?
1: Yes. NPC disease is one of um, over 50 lysosomal storage disorders. It's very rare. It's a cholesterol metabolism disorder. The cholesterol isn't properly trafficked inside the cell, and it starts to build up, and it causes severe damages over time. Many children appear typical at birth, but as the toxin builds up in the cells, um, it does have serious consequences for the children. They lose the ability to walk and to talk and to feed themselves. And it is a fatal disease. There is no effective therapy for it. It is very rare. When I was starting out reporting um, for this book, there were believed to be an estimated 200 cases or so in the United States, maybe 500 worldwide. I'm not sure the doctors have an accurate number, because for many People sometimes could be missed or misdiagnosed or undiagnosed, but it is very rare.
0: I mean, that is exceedingly rare in a population, say, just in the United States alone of, you know, almost 350 million to have only a few hundred cases. But one of the things that uh, seems to be a common theme amongst the children and the parents that you write about is they often are misdiagnosed to begin with. Uh, Sadly, they're often told the children are normal or they have like neonatal hyperbilirubinemia, and they'll just outgrow it, you know, by being under the the lights, uh, which is, you know, for the most part, normally what does happen. But so, so some of the kids, this is present at birth, others, it's much more subtle and, and insidious and sort of happens It it can happen at any age, age three, age five, some of these kids went to school and are very mainstream, but then start to falter with coordination and walking. I mean, it's really all over the map, isn't it?
1: Well, you are born with it. It's just a question of when the doctors are able to diagnose it or when someone notices it. Um, I mean, for many of the kids in the book that I write about, the parents sometimes notice themselves that the kids seem clumsy or awkward. Um, other times, teachers flag it and say, your child appears to be faltering or falling behind in class. We're concerned. Maybe we should try to get to the bottom of this. And many of them started on this very arduous kind of diagnostic od- odyssey. and. I mean, now there is a blood test that doctors can give, but at the time that many of these children were being diagnosed, there wasn't a blood test. And so when people were trying to rule out different things, it was kind of one of the last tests that might be run. So you'd go through a whole gamut of other tests, they would come back negative. I mean, it was really a saga for many people um, and took years to, for some of them at least, to get a diagnosis of this fatal disease.
0: Now, you point out there's really no treatment for it, but... A main theme of your book is how parents of these afflicted children really banded together to try to move the science forward. And really, you write this as a paradigm or perhaps a paradigm shift as to how parents can influence the direction of science, the discovery of possible treatments, even with such august bodies as the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, or the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. How did this come about? Because, well, let's start this way. Traditional science is pretty slow and meticulous. And so what are some of the ways in which it might frustrate these parents?
1: I think that, um, you know, definitely the book argues that there um, potentially should be a paradigm shift, and it really is a call to action. And not even just to parents, but anyone who finds themselves having to advocate either for themselves or loved ones in spaces where there's no effective therapy. This happens a lot, particularly with rare diseases, some of the frustrating things are when there, when it is a small disease, and this was even kind of like an ultra-rare small disease, there oftentimes isn't a lot of interest by drug companies in trying to create a therapy. It's such a, it takes a long time to create a therapy. Um, for many academics, they might not study it. There might not be funding for them um, from the NIH or from private philanthropic sources. So you might not have a lot of research going on or the research that's going on is focused on basic research, which is really important and to understand the mechanisms of a disease, but might not lead to a therapy or translating all of this basic research into something that would uh, get to a patient's bedside. So these parents get this terrible diagnosis for their children. They're so frightened. They ask, what can we do? What's, What's available to our children? Please prescribe something. And they learn that there's nothing that's there and available that's going to be a cure or or is going to be available in the timeline of these children's lives. And so they find each other, they organize themselves. There are patient advocacy groups that are already existing. They meet each other. There are scientists that are doing some basic research. They try to identify ones that actually want to accelerate things and move things from the uh, bench into the clinic. And they find a very sympathetic NIH scientist who is creating a lab with robots that can do rapid screening of drug libraries and who's looking for a group of people that he can join forces with, with the notion that if you put patients and families on the research team, that working together, they can accelerate the search for cures. So it's all these sort of factors happening at once and these people find each other and decide that they're gonna launch not only a science experiment, but a social experiment.
0: Yeah, that was very well said. I'm interested, I mean, among much of what you said in the robots, tell us a little bit about how that works, because you think at least, I guess, that you can try a number of substances that can treat, well, whether it's a rare disease or a more common disease, but it's a more systematic and powerful way, I suppose, to to try some of these things. Were you able to actually go into some of these laboratories and see what this is like?
1: I was. I got to see the robots in action, and they're, it's really you know, the technology is so spectacular. I mean, it kind of, it doesn't look spectacular at first because it's like these robotic arms and they look like they're just sort of like putting compounds in these, you know, they have these trays and these plates and these wells and all the different drugs and different sort of concentrations of the drugs are there. And the arms are moving things back and forth down this assembly line, almost like you're looking at a car being made, but it's not cars, it's a systematic exploration of drug libraries extensive drug libraries, hundreds of thousands of compounds that can be screened. And the idea is if you create a test for this disease using, in this case, they use the skin cells that were taken from these kids that have NPC, and you can screen the compounds with the robots systematically and rapidly, you can come up with a list of drugs that appear to get the cholesterol unstuck from the cells, which is what you're trying to do. And then you can further experiment and see, you know, what concentration of drug would work best, and you can create lists of compounds. I mean, it's it's really spectacular. It's the kind of technology that pharmaceutical companies routinely use, but investigators in labs, even labs like at the ones at the NIH, didn't have access all the time to this type of technology. So the NIH created the technology there and then invited not only their own scientists, but academic scientists to partner with them to try to find drugs that could potentially be repurposed and used for diseases that were being overlooked by the drug industry.
0: You're listening to Studio Tulsa. It's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann. And my guest today is Amy Doxer-Marcus, who's a staff reporter at the Wall Street Journal. She is the author of the new book, We the Scientists, How a Daring Team of Parents and Doctors Forged a New Path for Medicine. And Amy, we're talking about these libraries, if you will, of Potential uh, therapies, pharmaceuticals. One of the themes in the book is about so called orphan drugs. And these are drugs that seem to have some efficacy, but we don't exactly know what conditions they might treat. And so these actually have, over the last just several years, have been, there have been more orphan drugs brought to market, I'd say, than ever before. Why is that, do you think?
1: I think that there is um, an effort by the FDA to try to focus more on rare diseases and there was also patient advocacy for many years to you know to pass the orphan drug act which does provide financial incentives for companies to develop drugs these sorts of incentives uh, have increased over the years there've been a variety of different measures to try to um entice drug companies to come in and then also there's been growing awareness that patient advocates should have more of a say in um, what's happening, in how much risk patients are willing to take, in what drugs um, go to the forefront. And one of the things I was struck by in this experiment that got launched by this group um, was that they wanted the patient advocates to help prioritize the compounds, help analyze the data together, help tell the doctors, well, these are the things that bother us and bother our children, and this is what we want to move forward first. So, all of this has been sort of a scientific revolution, a regulatory change, and also a social experiment, where um, people, patients, families, advocates have more of a say in the role of developing science and advancing drugs.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, and there, as you write about, there's an inherent tension between the families who, of course, have young children who are have this horrible condition that's going to lead to their early death, and you know the the children being quite handicapped, and so there's a need for the parents to have hope, and to essentially put emotional stock in in something they might see as a potential salve or or possibly cure. And of course, scientists, the the main need is to really be objective and to not let emotion try to color their perceptions of things. And so it's very important in terms of doing the science. And so there's almost this inevitable clash between hope, and I don't want to say hope and science, but hope and perhaps reality or statistical reality. How was some of this reconciled in these drug trials for Neiman-Pick type C?
1: Well... First of all, if you don't mind, I just want to sort of raise something that I think is a really important point, and that is that the parents didn't base everything on hope, and the scientists didn't base everything just on, you know, just the facts type of thing. One of the important points that I try to make in the book is that parents and scientists can approach the data in a different way. It's not that the parents were only basing their um, their decisions on hope. I think that the tension came from, do you think that the data and the results in animal experiments allow you to take on the risks of trying an untested compound in children? And often the parents would make decisions based on the fact that they were worried that if too many tests were done, it would take so long that the children would be so advanced and so sick that they wouldn't be able to survive, that they might die before these drugs came into the clinic. And I think often the scientists came into it thinking, you know, we want to do one more study, we want to do another study, we really need to make sure that we understand why this is working and and how it's working. I think the tensions came in sometimes from the timeline often research looks towards the future. In fact, when, you, you know, when you're going into a clinical trial, you're explicitly told, this is research, it's not a treatment, this isn't designed to benefit you, you're entering into the clinical trial and the hopes that we'll gain data that may benefit future generations. And the parents, they did want future generations to benefit, they didn't want other children to suffer as their children were suffering, but they were on a much more accelerated timeline They wanted to conduct the research and a science in a way that their children would also benefit. They wanted to accelerate things. And I, I think that that was the tension more than anything else. The parents didn't want to give their children drugs that didn't work. They believed in science, too. On that, everyone was agreed. But I think the tension was, you know, how fast can we move? And what's the right timeline to put this into children? And some of the parents accelerated that timeline by doing something unusual, which is this drug that they settled on that they wanted to test called cyclodextrin was available. It wasn't an available compound that they could access. And so some of the parents went to their doctors and they asked them to go to the FDA and to request permission through the Compassionate Use Arm to give the compound to their children they were hoping to collect data in a way that might ultimately benefit a traditional formal clinical trial but by doing that by getting the fda to sign off on that and by starting to collect the data the scientists got access to human data that they might not ordinarily have and in some ways i do think it did accelerate the timeline towards a clinical trial
0: yeah and that's worth emphasizing is the compassionate use standard if you will because a lot of times if you're doing a like a double blinded Placebo-controlled trial, or even before you get to that point, you're doing like a phase one trial to determine if the toxicity of a drug. Um, you need to have, I guess, folks in a control arm or folks that are going to receive the drug. But here, there was this opportunity because this disease is so rare for parents to seek compassionate use of this compound cyclodextrin. And so I think parent, it was fraught for the parents to decide: Am I, you know, helping future generations, or is there a possibility of helping my own child, or can we do both? And so I felt like that was an inherent tension because it seemed like the scientists, at least one of the scientists you write about, sort of thought, well, if all the all the parents wind up getting the drug on compassionate use, we're not going to have enough to have a valid study. Did I read that correctly?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is always a worry that because you do need some people who would be available to enroll in a formal clinical trial. In this case, they were able to do that. They did do a phase one study at the NIH. They were able to enroll a sufficient number of children. And once they had some preliminary results from that that seemed promising, a drug company eventually did come in and launch a traditional uh, placebo, you know, randomized double-blind trial. And they did enroll sufficient numbers of people for that as well. But that was sort of, you know, down the road. When they were just getting started, one of the doctors at the NIH who ended up, you know, running the clinical trial, his key worry was if there are too many people who go into the compassionate use arm and it's such a rare disease and it's so hard to get people to enroll in a clinical trial to begin with, will we have a sufficient number of people to really give a firm answer either way, yes this drug works or no this drug does not work. And he felt as a doctor and as a scientist That it was his duty to see this through and be able to look the parents in the eye and say to them, this drug that I'm giving your children, it may have some risks in it, but it does have evidence that it's benefiting them. And he felt strongly that the only way to do that was in a formal trial. Some of the families felt, "Okay, not everyone is going to want to do a compassionate use arm. Not everyone's going to want to do that because that's you know outside sort of the confines of the formal trial, and it's an accelerated way of doing things. Let's um, set up a compassionate use arm where we're gathering data, and let's set up a formal arm where we're gathering data, and hopefully all the data will be beneficial in the end. So there was tension in how do we get a clear answer, and how do we also utilize the data that we're accruing in an effective way?
0: You also go on to point out, though, that once a drug company gets interested in a drug and might fund some research that the way the economics of pharmaceuticals works, another company might either buy that catalog or buy that company and then just shut the whole thing down entirely, which sort of in effect did happen. And there's another aspect that's even more complicated, which you write about an FDA advisory panel uh, during which some of the parents of children afflicted with NPC testified or testimony, I guess is the word, you know, and it was very moving because of course they brought their children, you know, to the testimony table or whatever. And so you write about how it was the tension and attention of the um, advisory panel was much more uh, focused in the afternoon when the families were talking versus in the morning when the scientists were talking. And so the advisory panel did in fact wind up voting by like 10 to three, to go forward or recommend approval uh, of this drug. But then ultimately, that's just an advisory panel and the FDA wound up, I believe, not approving it. Can you describe a little bit about that process?
1: Yeah. So in the case of the FDA advisory uh, hearing, that was for a different drug. There was a drug called Zavesca that was approved for Gaucher disease, which is another lysosomal storage disorder. And there had been some indications in, um, in mice that the drug might also be effective for Neiman-Pick type C. And a drug company did run a trial with NPC patients. And what happened is, the data wasn't very clear on whether it was going to work or not. There were some positive indications, but the drug didn't meet its endpoints. And so the FDA de- decided to hold an advisory committee hearing. Many of the parents were receiving this drug, Zavesca, off-label, because it was already approved for a different condition, and because their doctors felt there might be benefit for their kids. The doctors would write these prescriptions. And so they decided to testify at the FDA, because they wanted this drug to be approved for NPC disease. And what happened was, it kind of highlighted some of the issues that they later faced with their own project to try to get the cyclodextrin drug approved by the FDA, because the trial, the evidence that was accrued in this trial wasn't very clear. The FDA was confused about whether to approve it or not. and ultimately decided not to approve it. And the parents took away from that advisory committee hearing and from that whole experience, we don't want that to happen with cyclodextrin, because what happens is, is sometimes, if the drug's not approved by the FDA, but is approved for another condition, a doctor may be willing to write an off-label prescription, but an insurance company might not be willing to cover it. And then the families and the children wouldn't have access to it. So they really felt it was important. They learned their lesson from the whole experience with the Zaveska case. They wanted cyclodextrin to get across the finish line. They wanted an improved FDA drug. You know, They wanted insurance companies to cover it. But you run into so many problems that are really out of your control. And as you mentioned, a drug company did license the cyclodextrin research and data and the drug from the NIH. They did run a trial. But before the drug trial was done, the company got bought. And then the company that bought it got bought. So, you had this turnover of companies, and, eventually, the drug company that bought this drug, when they unblinded all the results, the cyclodextrin results were confounding also, because there was no difference between the kids who got the drug and the kids who didn't. Now, that could have been the end of things, but the FDA was interested in um, working to try to understand the data and potentially run another trial, and another drug company came in and bought the drug again. So the story of cyclodextrin for Neiman-Pick type C disease is not even over yet. So, you know, my book chronicles how, you know, with drug development, there's so much uncertainty and you never know what's going to happen. And so one of the messages of my book is, because you don't know what's going to happen, because you do set out to do an experiment, it's so important that everybody be at the table and that all the data that's being collected, whether inside a trial or through compassionate use or through any other way it's being collected, that it be collected in uniform, standard ways that will enable FDA to use every piece of data. Like, that is one of the core messages of this book. Collect all the data, because you never know what's going to be valuable at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, it's really it's powerful and and I just I feel, of course, you can't help but feel for the parents um, and, and empathize with them just how difficult their plight is and just how much at the mercy of like these pharmaceutical firms are and, and how huge these companies are, as well as the NIH and how difficult it must be to, to be heard. but you, you make the point that they by banding together they really did. And Amy, um, one of the inspirations, for this book was you've been on the health beat at the Wall Street Journal for quite some time, and you earned a Pulitzer Prize in 2005 for beat reporting, writing a series of stories about um, progress in rare cancers. And then after that accolade uh, had a very personal story of a relatively rare cancer, not as rare as niemann picked type C, but pretty rare nonetheless, that sort of set you on this journey. Do you mind telling us about that?
1: No, I'd be happy to tell you because it's really the origin story of the book, um, but it's it's a sad story, which is when I got to the end of the reporting and it was like a year long um, reporting series on all these advances in cancer and sort of the living with cancer rather than dying from cancer that these new drugs were affording many people, my mom got diagnosed with a very rare cancer, gallbladder cancer, around 5,000 people or so in the United States um, with this cancer and um, she had metastatic cancer. So it had already spread by the time it was diagnosed. And the prognosis was very grim. And of course, you know, I was devastated as her daughter that she had this diagnosis. And also, you know, I was a reporter. And so I wanted to help her. So I started doing research, and I started interviewing doctors, and I called up policymakers. And what I learned was that, you know, some of the same things that were that i That were plaguing the NPC families also hit all kinds of rare diseases. And that is that, if there's not a lot of patients, it's hard to get drug companies involved. There's not a lot of researchers all the time. Even when there's research being done, it's hard for them to get funding. I mean, it's just, it's so, so challenging. And, you know, sadly, my mom did pass away. And, you know, before she died, I had been thinking about, how could we make a difference? And how could I do more research to understand what's happening? And I received a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that enabled me to take some time off from the journal. And the grant was to study innovative models um, that were involved in rare diseases and trying to change you know, sort of the trajectory of getting these drugs approved and getting advocacy off the ground. And one of the people that I had interviewed to try to get some information about my mom called me one day, And he said, I know you've been interested in innovative models. I know that you're interested in how can policy sort of support the acceleration of rare drug disease research. And I met these families. I met these families whose children have been diagnosed with a rare disease, Neiman-Pick type C, and they're working with a group of like-minded scientists and doctors and a group at the NIH, and they're trying to make a change. And you want to meet them. They would be really great role models for what you are interested in studying. And I did. I got connected with these families, and I started going to their meetings, and I started meeting their kids. And I went to the family meetings with the scientists, and I interviewed the policymakers. I mean, they were so generous in giving me access to the whole process. And I saw that they were trying to do something different. Everyone. I mean, the scientists were working so hard, and the doctors, and the and, and the policymakers, and government officials, and of course the families. I mean, they had the most at stake because they were trying to save their children's lives and the lives of other children too. And I ended up basically following them for over a decade. I mean, you know, it just it takes so many years to do the research. And set up the trial and go to the FDA and get feedback and you know try to accumulate data. It's such a long process, um, but they were really open because all along, they really believed that what they were doing was not only going to try to find some way to help their own kids, but to create a better system to create a system that works more effectively and works faster and can benefit everybody. And that was sort of the goal from the beginning. Let's find a drug and let's find a model for doing science that will work better for everyone. The expertise that patients bring about their own disease and their lived experience, all of that can help enrich the scientific process and the generation of scientific knowledge.
0: Well, indeed. And you, you illustrate it so well in, in the book, um, the name of which is We the Scientists How a Daring Team of Parents and Doctors Forged a New Path for Medicine. And it's by my guest today, Amy Doxer Marcus, who's a staff reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Amy, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoyed learning more about this. And thank you for your work in this book and the reporting. It's really great.
1: Thank you for speaking with me. I enjoyed our conversation. <laughs>
0: Amy Doxer-Marcus is a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Her new book is We the Scientists, How a Daring Team of Parents and Doctors Forged a New Path for Medicine. Well, that's our show for this Medical Monday. Studio Tulsa is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of KWGS or the University of Tulsa. For Studio Tulsa, I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe out there.